Welcome to the Sus Talk Podcast. I'm Sumer Rocky. Today, I'm joined by an amazing guest. He is the executive producer of the Zach Gelb Show, airing from 6 to 10 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Radio. He also has his own show, The Ryan Hickey Show, on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network every Monday and Thursday mornings. He is making his return to the podcast. Ryan Hickey joins me. Ryan, thank you so much for joining the show. Sauce, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad the first time we did this, um, it, it didn't go so bad that you never wanted me to have me back on the show. So thanks for uh, thanks for the second offer. I appreciate it. Well, you know, it's it's that time of year again when football takes the center stage, well, as it usually does and still always does during the entire fall. But besides the point, we just went through a rugged but spectacular college football season. And I wanted to have you back on because there was a lot to take in from this playoffs, from the, the playoffs and how we got to that point. And I just want to begin this podcast with a simple, with a recap of like the national championship game, which happened Monday night, Alabama took on Ohio state and the Crimson Tide just straight up destroyed the Buckeyes 52 to 24. For me, the biggest takeaway from that game was Devonta Smith. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that name properly because I've seen a lot of people just correcting him or him correcting people or whatever. He just single-handedly annihilated the Ohio State Buckeyes. Like he, most of his work not only did 12 catches, 215 yards, and three touchdowns, but he did all this in one half. Almost all of this was done in one half, and then he left the game because he injured his hand or some, or his finger or thumb, whatever. But he was spectacular, basically backing up everything, especially winning the Heisman this year. Najee Harris, the running back, scored three touchdowns, twice from goal line runs and once from like an excellent, just a dump-off pass that he just kind of took to the house. And then Mac Jones, five touchdowns, five touchdown passes, total annihilation, and what really comes to mind with this is are as are we suffering from Bama fatigue does it feel like you know it feels like for I've been suffering from it for years now and so and it just feels like now everyone's kind of just bored do you feel the same way that's an interesting question fatigue I would say no just because like even as just a college football fan watching what they did this year, it was just incredible. Like the ease that they were able to just crush their opponents, despite the fact that they played arguably one of the hardest schedules that any team has ever had to play in, in college football history, considering that they played 11 SEC games plus Notre Dame plus Ohio state. So it was really, you know, no break at all. Fatigue's an interesting word says, cause like, am I tired of seeing them win? Yes. But at the same time, the frustration with college football and the way it's constructed is that there's really no way, unless honestly Nick Saban retires and the program just goes to hell, that this is going to slow down anytime soon. So it's like you look at all right, how far away are programs. You you know, we thought Ohio State, you know, was easily one of the top three teams in the country. So like they are, there's no argument, and they lose by 28 points. So it's like you, you see the growing gap that Nick Saban just continues to create at Alabama. Fatigue, like, I understand, like, again, like, I would love to see some fresh blood, love to see some other teams outside of just Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama play for the title every year, I would. But at the same time, it's like, man, so many programs are so far away that, like, realistically, we're probably not going to get that anytime soon, to be honest. Like, you just see just how dominant they were throughout this entire season. And you say, all right, maybe outside of Clemson, what other team in college football is even really 
close to the level. And unfortunately right now, the answer is none. So I, I'm with you. I'm not a big fan of at least seeing, you know, Alabama dominate or seeing the same two or three teams every single year in the picture. But, you know, that's on the rest of college football to try to find a way to catch up. And I'm not saying that's easy, but it's on them to try to close the gap. I believe that it's just kind of like when, when I watch this team and it's just, you feel a sense of hopelessness. Like what other team is going to step up and take these guys down? It took a generational year, a sensational once in a generation kind of career like from Joe Burrow to really topple them. And that LSU team, by the way, was cons- is considered by some to be the greatest college football team ever that anyone's ever seen. And even Alabama, this Alabama team has been getting that kind of recognition, saying maybe this team might be the greatest team in, of all time. And then at that point, I'm just like, hold on. Are we really just going to discredit what Joe Burrow did last year? Like, just like that? It, it's... I just feel as though like sometimes it's good to see someone else win. I want to see an SEC East team get in there. I want to see Georgia and Florida in, even though they keep like shooting themselves in the foot every year. I want to see these guys like come in and just like win. I want to see a different team. It just it feel. I get that like you want it's it's fun like appreciating dynasties like this, but at some point, it's just, come on guys, wrap it up. It's over. Uh, that's you know and especially too you think college football like it's because the players are there you know two or three years at a time and then they go like you you think all right other schools should have an opportunity teams shouldn't be able to reload as frequently as alabama as ohio state as clemson are doing but it's like once you get the machine going and once you get you know obviously especially with a lot of these guys the main goal is to go to the pros and you see the professional prospects that alabama turns out year after year after year like it's tough to compete. Like I said, like it's, you got to get a head coach in there with obviously, you know, great facilities that just can, can have kids believe that basically have them, you know, you gotta have the mindset of we want to be the ones to take down to end the dynasty. And so far, a lot of these, you know, these better kids are going still trying to go continue the dynasty instead of wanting to end it. And that's, you know, I go, like I said, it's on other programs, on other schools, on other coaches to try to get some of that talent away. And I mean, as we sit here, Alabama's 2021 recruiting class According to some recruiting rankings, the best ever. So yeah, so the, the tide will keep on rolling. Oh, that's that's unfortunate to hear. But I understand like some of these some of these kids like they they're kind of just looking at it, it's like this is my best chance to get recognition. This is my best chance to have multiple scouts look at me, and then I could be a first round pick in the future someday. Although I w- speaking of potential first rounders, I want to go right to Devonta Smith, who put on just like one of the best wide receiver careers like or seasons you'll ever see out of anyone in college football he dominated the entire season he won the Heisman he dominated in the national championship game and it begs the question could is hit this whole season that he had did it make him look like a generational talent and what I'm trying to go into is could he warrant a number two pick selection in the same vein that one Calvin Johnson did when he came out of Georgia Tech and everyone called him a generational talent? That's a great question, Sus. Now, especially when you look at who's sitting at number two in the New York Jets, I will be honest. I don't know about you, Sus, since we're both here in New York, I don't trust the Jets that if they were to uh, draft Devontae Smith that they would actually know how to use him. I guess that's my only – that's the only thing I'll say is that whoever drafts him, he'll go very high, top 10, maybe even top five. You have to kind of 
know how to use me. I don't personally, I don't think he's one of those guys you can just plug on the field and, and like sort of like a Calvin Johnson say, just get open. Like you saw what, what Alabama did this year, and especially Devontae Smith, since he was really the only target in terms of wide receivers for Alabama once Jalen Waddle got hurt. He was still able to get wide open a ton because of the way Steve Sarkeesian schemed up plays and called plays. Like, not taking away anything away from Devontae Smith. But at the same time, too, like, the play call on the offense put him in tremendous positions to get open and then get the ball in space, and he did it from there. So, again, I'm, I'm not saying – or I'm not saying that he's not good at all. Trust me, he, he is by far the best college player this year without a doubt. My only concern is, like, if some teams just assume, like, all right, we're going to draft him, we're just going to throw him on the field, and he'll do what he did at Alabama, it does take – you know, I think you do have to have an offensive coordinator that has some creativity and knows how to use a guy like that because I mean, you reference Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson is a beast of a human being, right? He's just – I mean, we call him Pegatron for a reason. He's 6'5", like 220. Is like, he, he's not built as a wide receiver, so it's impossible for these smaller DBs just to cover. Devontae Smith, obviously very slight in stature. He weighs less than me. I think he's right around the same height, 5'11", 6 foot. So it's like he, he's a big human being out there, not saying he can't have success. You just got to know how to use him. So that's the only thing I'll caution with the Jets is that do you trust us that the Jets will be able to kind of figure out how to use him in a way that will make him the most productive? I personally don't. I mean, judging by every decision that they've made in the past decade, I, I would probably say no. But imagine, let's say they do eventually, who I think they're probably going to draft Justin Fields at number two. Then comes Miami. And that's interesting because we're seeing reports now of like some of the stuff that's being, being said about Tua today as we're recording. And then you see, like, imagine Smith reconnecting with Tua who they already have chemistry from them from their Bama days. And that's exactly like a sorely needed position. Like at the moment is you could just take, take the number three pick and just select Smith. And then already Tua has someone who he can not only rely on, but also someone who basically already knows look how, what kind the how he works and how like the way that he operates so it's just interesting to me. I just feel like for this kind of like situation where Smith has this amazing year, and it's kind of just amazing that we're talking about this guy as if he's like the best receiver, and he might not even be the best receiver in this class. Like this is a very stacked receiving like draft class this year. It also includes Jamar Chase, who sat out this year, and we were having almost a similar discussion with him last year. He may have been had one of the best receive wide receiver careers or seasons we've ever seen. Yeah, like you said, don't you, people forget about Jamar Chase because he, he opted out. But you're right, he was incredible. He was the number one receiver last year in a receiver room that had I like Terrence Marshall who come out this year, and they also had Justin Jefferson who maybe outside of Justin Herbert would have been the rookie of the year this year, and he was the number two because of Jamar Chase and how good he was. You know, um, the Jam- I mean the Devontae Smith to Miami is interesting. I like that a lot, Sus. Especially right, you, you referenced that article that came out earlier um, about some Dolphins teammates questioning if two is the guy. You're going to have another offensive coordinator the third in three years now down the Rami, second um, in two years for Tua since he's been down there. Get him some familiarity, right? You get him a guy he knows he can trust. And so while they're learning another offense another year, maybe that is a confidence boost, a safety blanket that he can rely upon. I like that fit a lot if Miami does actually pull the trigger at three and get Devontae Smith. I wouldn't even think, like, I let's say – they make a trade down and they switch up with like with Cincinnati who desperately they want to get the offensive tackle Seawolf. 
Mm-hmm. Miami could draft Seawald in that position too. They could because that's another need that they is just refortifying the offensive line. But just the fact that you draft someone who is familiar with it, like that's not only our is that, that that's a message that you're sending to Tua that we have your back. You're our guy. We're gonna help you out. Here's the guy that you played with before. So go nuts. Yeah, I think it'd be uh, I think it'd be like I said a lot of fun and like you said just a, a security blanket because even like two you watching this year he kind of looked not lost but he just looked a little uncertain maybe a little gun shy at times and like I said maybe just a familiar face on the field help him feel a little more comfortable as now you'd assume he transitioned to be the full time starter in 2021 it's going to be his time like just have him be as 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 most comfortable as possible on the field. I'll I'll say this about Devonta Smith is that I feel so confident that he's going to succeed in the NFL level because like you look at he not only has like the skills but he also it's that pedigree it's that Bama pedigree of you see all these wide receivers that have come out of Alabama that have already had instant success or are one of the best in the league Julio Jones Calvin Ridley and we saw sparks of just success from guys like Henry Ruggs and well and Jerry Judy like these guys and Smith and Waddle might be better than both of those guys they were all on the same team and like those two, both of them, Smith and Waddle, could be so much better than both Judy and, and Ruggs. It's just kind of amazing that Bama has turned itself into this wide receiver factory. It's just insane. That's that's the scary part. Is like to your point, like you know, earlier you're talking about you know 2019 LSU versus 2020 Alabama. Like 20, 2019 Alabama was more talented than this year's Alabama team. Like you said, you had on one team Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Jalen Waddle, Devontae Smith, all healthy, all playing on the field. It's like how the hell do you guard anyone with Tua Tungavaloa, um, also a quarterback pulling the, pulling the strings and pulling the trigger there? It, it It's crazy to think that you're right. Like, you have all this talent, and now they just keep reloading. And you think of Alabama as a defensive-minded team, right, running the ball, physical offensive line when Nick Saban won his first few national titles. And now with the way college football has transformed, almost like a seven-on-seven, seven, you know, first one of 60 wins a lot of these games – Nick Saban has seamlessly transitioned from a ground and pound defensive minded game to now he's just going to air it out. You guys want to play spread offense? We'll do spread offense. We'll get better skilled players than you have, and we'll beat you at your own game. And it, it just, that's part of just the incredibility of, of this entire Alabama dynasty is that they've morphed. They, they flipped and did a total 180 on the fly and are still winning titles. And now, like you said, there, there's no end in sight, and they just keep on reloading stud number one top 10 receivers year after year after year it's it's frightening i you know what's amazing to me is that coming in the next year sarkeesian's moving on he's going to become mm-hmm. the head coach of texas and replacing him bill o'brien he's back he's back in the national like and i i feel like this is good for him because he's in a much more minimized role he's clearly he will know exactly the kind of role that he has he's not going to try to go go for a power graph although that would be the most hilarious thing we'll we'll ever see if he tried to basically usurp Nick Saban I think the entirety of like college football will just celebrate especially in the SEC they will celebrate if he manages to just take over and create a mutiny in in Alabama I would I'm gonna go on a limb if Bill O'Brien tries the same power, um, tries to have the same power struggle that he had in t- in Houston, and he wins that, sus, I think I may retire from sports. If somehow Alabama gives the power and trusts Bill O'Brien more than Nick Saban at this point, I mean, maybe it's time for all of us to call it a career. Holy cow. <laughs>
I would just start. I would not stop laughing for like a year after that. But I'll say what I'll, one more point on this. You mentioned the fact that he switched and adjusted to this more offensive oriented style. It, you know what it kind of reminded me of a little bit was you know, how Coach K for the longest time would always stick with some of these like for like multi-year guys like they start from freshmen and go and leave as seniors all those kinds of guys he would he was always like that kind of that kind of guy but then he made the switch he made the switch to one and done because he he figured out that this is this is the way we're doing things now and we're gonna and i'm gonna beat everyone at their own game especially when he looks at Kentucky, he was just like, I'm going to beat you guys at your own game. And he did that. He won a national championship in 2015 doing it that way. So when it's just amazing when you watch like these, these head coaches, like these great minds, like Nick Saban, they just make the game keeps changing, but then he changes the game along with it. I that's, and that's like what makes these guys great, right? Like their ability. Could could you obviously have a, a system in place? You have a plan in your head that gets you to, have success. Nick Saban, like I said, won titles running the ball with um, with Derrick Henry, running the ball with Eddie Lacy. Remember going back to you know the early days. So it's like he he had a lot of success and built a dynasty built on physical defense, stopping your opponent, and running the ball, basically bleeding out the clock. Nothing flashy in offense at all. And then he saw, you know what, like to to have that success, and then realize, hey, the game is changing. Maybe we should also change as well. Like I said, with Coach K as well. That's what makes it so impressive and why they're all-time coaches is you have success one way and it's easy just to basically be set in your way and say hey we've won doing it my way why would we change it now you know why would we um why would we deviate from the success and the path that we had to lead us to success and they've done it quickly on the fly and they've done it you know successfully to where they're even more powerful now than they were back when they kind of first built their dynasties to begin like i said that's what just makes you know a, a great coach one of all-time great just able to pivot like that seamlessly and then have even have more success and have the self-awareness to realize we need to change keep up with the times and then have the confidence and wherewithal to do so yeah final point do you think that mac jones at all impressed you at all because i'm i'm still so not sold on him i still think he's the sixth best qb coming out of coming into the draft and it's just hard to like believe in a bama quarterback given just all the talent that they have it's like it's kind of like a a blessing but but that turns into a curse for for them like you think like i i like mac jones he looks great in college but then you just look at the talent around it's like are we sure he's not being carried by these guys that's a great point sus like he's like i honestly still like i was i'll I'll admit i was more impressed with him in the national title game than maybe any other game this year and to your point it's like i still don't know how much is him how much is steve sarkeesian scheming up these plays how much is just you have a freaking Devontae Smith, a freaking Najee Harris, an incredibly incredible offensive line. Like he does have the best at every position, essentially, but it feels like. Um, it, the thing that is interesting, I think he, in, in terms of smarts reading the field, he is one of the smartest quarterbacks in college football. He knows how to read the field. He knows how to maneuver defenses with his eyes and, and with his, you know, with pump fakes. So he knows how to help get guys open. I wonder, though, in a league that is transitioning to athletic quarterback play, that is moving away from statues in the pocket, that's more now about dynamic, out-of-the-pocket, Josh Allen, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Holmes, making plays off schedule. I mean, as we saw, Mac Jones, anytime he tries to scramble, it's tough to watch, right? He's great in the pocket. He's great when he has time. But when things start collapsing, he has to make plays with his legs. That is not his strength at all. I wonder, in the next level, right, in the NFL – 
when now those kind of quarterbacks are on their way out and young, um, mobile, agile quarterbacks are in, I just wonder, would that style work? Like, I think he's smart enough by far. I think he's smart enough to be an NFL quarterback. And I think he's one of those guys that, you know, has, can read defenses and, and win games, almost like Philip Rivers can with his, with his mind. You know, he, he knows how to move defenses around. I just wonder how much will his physical limitations kind of hurt his ceiling, if you will, and try to make him Super Bowl winning quarterback, a franchise quarterback. Like, I, you know, we're just moving away from those Philip Rivers type quarterbacks. Um, and I just wonder, you know, if that style is actually a, a winning strategy or a winning style in 2020 or 2021. Well, it's interesting to see. I just, I just don't think like you can't like wrap your whole franchise around a, a quarterback like that with so many questions. If you're even asking like, is he, is the talent like around him? What got made him so good? Like if you're asking that kind of question, that's already a red flag. And right. it's, it, it, I mean, like I, I like him. It's just the problem. That's just the, that's just how it is right now is that's hap- That's going to be the case for every single Alabama quarterback, unless they show up, they do what Tua did, which is to show off a skill so, be so skilled that you have to just look at it and just say, okay, it's not even just talent. This guy is just that damn good. And we'll see how, how his journey goes heading into the draft. But I want to switch over to the NFL because there's also some playoff football going on. Um, before we go into it, I just want to kind of give a, a, a brief public service announcement by telling the NCAA, you need to create the Nickelodeon Slime Bowl. It has to happen. It has to be a New Year's Day game because after what I saw on the Saints Bears broadcast for Nickelodeon, how is how is this not a thing? The NCAA is all about getting money, right? They're all about getting. Oh money. yeah, oh yeah, all about getting money. Why are you, why is this not a thing? Why are you not doing a a, a bowl game that's near six with good teams and not putting it on Nickelodeon and doing the things that the that their broadcast did for the Bears Saints, which made it somewhat more watchable than it should have than it needed to be. <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was a brutal watch, but you know what? What didn't make it so bad was the fact that you know Noah Eagle and Nate Burleson were calling the game. They were just so casually, so fly. And they had like the way that they incorporated some of the Knicks stars to in the broadcast, I thought was very like awesome. And then some of the graphics, like that first down line was so cool to watch. Like why are the, why is this not a thing? I, I want to see the ending image for a bowl game is the head, co- the winning head coach be dumped in slime. It has to happen because we already dump like really dumb things onto coaches in other. You have the cheese it bowl, so they dump cheese its. You have the Idaho potato bowl where they they dump fries on the coach. So yeah, why not? Let's go a step further, Nickelodeon bowl, and let's dump the game winning coach in slime. I love it, Sus. Just, you should maybe be the head of that. Start start running that for twenty twenty two. It's I swear to God they need to do this because if you're all about money, it's like, come on guys, you're, you're not even, you're not even trying. That means that you're not trying. Come on guys. NCAA execs do, do better because if you're not putting that, that product, that innovative product onto the field, what what are you doing? What are you guys doing? I don't get it. <laughs> I, I just don't understand it. We already waste like fries and cheese. It's why are we sacrifice? <laughs> take those out, put that in. At least I'm with with sus. At least with slime, there's a purpose. There's like a purpose for it's like that's meant to be dumped on somebody. 
Yeah. Fries and Cheez-Its? That's wasteful. I want to eat that. I, it's like <laughs> I looked at like all the all the wasted fries, all the wasted Cheez-Its on the, on the field, and I'm just like, I will actually go onto that field, and I will pick every single one of them up and eat them because <laughs> it's so wasteful. I hated it, every single part of that. I'm like, what is this? It's so dumb. Why are we doing this? We should stop doing that and just start dumping slime on people or just dump regular water on people. Stop it. It's 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 so dumb. Oh my god. All right. Oh, it sounds like you hit a nerve there, Sus. Uh, I just it's just I love Cheez-Its. You, you can't dump that and waste Jeez. that. It's so it's like those people that like make a bathtub full of food. I'm like, "Why? Why are you wasting such good food?" Anyway. <sighs> That was therapeutic, but you know what else is going to be therapeutic? I want to introduce a segment, and Ooh. I'd like to call this the Playoff Losers Therapy Session. Oh, man. So, coincidentally, <laughs> both of our favorite teams, the Seahawks for me, the Colts for you, which, by the way, I, I'm kind of interested to know how you became a Colts fan. Oh, yeah. My um my dad growing up was a big Johnny Unitas fan, so he kind of uh, – that was his favorite player, so – Watched a lot of Johnny U and they were on the Baltimore Colts and just adopted them. And I've been a Colts fan ever since then. You also picked them up at like right around the uh, right great time because I'm assuming you grew up with Peyton Manning. You grew very up lucky. Yes. Very fortunate. And then you, you, you have that one year where like everything went, went down the tubes, but then you end up getting a generational quarterback in Andrew Luck. Uh, that's a sore subject, but so we're just going to glance past through that. And you know, this, this whole team right now is built pretty spectacularly, and it's kind of interesting. So the question I'm going to pose to you for this segment is, what is one annoying thing about the Colts this year that you felt they, if they corrected that one problem, they'd be still in the, they'd still be in the playoffs right now? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, just from, just from Saturday's game alone, I could pick out a few. I will go because you know what? I, I won't bash Phil Rivers here. I will go steadier wide receiver play because even especially I think so. I think Saturday perfectly encapsulated the Colts season. They play up to their competition, and honestly, they can beat anyone on any given day. I truly believe that. Last year, they went into Kansas City on Sunday night and beat Patrick Holmes and the Chiefs with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. They have the talent throughout the roster to beat any team in the NFL. They beat the Packers this year. Aaron Rodgers at home. They also have they make enough mistakes and they play down to the competition where they will lose to any team in the NFL, i.e. the Jaguars. Their only one of the year was against the Colts. And they almost lost to the Jaguars in week 17 and when they needed to get in the playoffs. And then part of that is just their inconsistent wide receiver play. I like Michael Pittman a lot. He's a rookie. So, you know, it's tough to kind of put a lot of responsibility in his shoulders. And it's tough because I love T.Y. Hilton. He he's been he's been there really since Andrew Luck's been there for almost a decade now. But now that he's getting older, now that he's, you know, had a career riddled with injuries, he has slowed down. He is not your number one option anymore. It really was Michael Pittman towards the, the stretch end. And even on Saturday's game against the Bills, you saw he was the number one option. The issue is when you're relying on number one guy and he's a rookie, there's inconsistencies. He had a few drop passes. The one in the end that I thought personally, you know, the throw was there. He should have caught it. He, he dropped it on fourth and goal that ended up with the Colts getting no points in that drive. Arguably turned the game around. And that's where they lost right there. So, but even look like the Colts had, depending on how you want to count it, six or seven drop passes in the game. And Phil Rivers played fine. Like, I didn't think he was the reason why they lost at all. And, you know, Jonathan Taylor had a few bad drops, Naeem Hines, Michael Pittman. So it's like, you, you know, two, even two or three of these drop passes are caught. Like, that, who, that's a different game. So it's just 
my frustration is Rivers is who he is. Obviously, as we know that the receivers to me didn't do enough to help him out this year, especially in the playoff game against Buffalo. So I would probably say the biggest frustration this year was just their inconsistency at the wide receiver position. No real number one emerged and no reliable threat came about where Phil Burrows, all right, I need a third and five. This is who I'm going to. We kind of know it. There was, there was not that guy. So that was probably, I'd say, my biggest frustration. I would have I would have thought you were going to go right to the the play calling and how it's and I noticed this when I was watching week 16 is they just they had this big league big lead against the Steelers but then for some reason they just stopped doing the thing that kept that kept winning in the game which was running the ball. They couldn't stop Jonathan Taylor that game and for some reason Frank Reich decided, "Yeah, we're good. We're just going to start chucking it." And then the Steelers came back and won the game. I would have thought that that was one of the aspects of the Colts that you were going to focus on. So you just ranted about the, the slime ball. Can I? Can I? Can I? Can I give a quick rant here, Sus? Of course. Now, I honestly like I forgot about this to be honest. So watching the Colts on Saturday, I forgot that, especially in the playoffs. Like everyone is watching the game, so now like everyone is commenting on everything your favorite team is doing. I'm sure, especially you know when the Seahawks play like uh, on primetime games. The Colts didn't play a lot of primetime games, so I missed it this year. But I forgot when your team is playing and it's the only game, everyone is watching. Everyone has opinions. I couldn't believe, and this is a, a massive frustration, a bone I want to pick here. Twitter especially, right? I understand it's not the real world. But especially when it comes to the NFL, Twitter applauds and they praise coaches that are aggressive, right? What do we see? Twitter anal- or analytics Twitter, I should say, is always saying, go for it, go for it, go for it. Don't punt. You know, we have cowardly punts. People are crushing Mike Tomlin. People are crushing uh, Mike Vrabel for their decisions to punt on fourth and short in opponent's territory. People are freaking out when coaches are too conservative and don't be aggressive. Don't put the foot on the pedal. At the same time, people are killing Mike Tom and people are killing Mike Vrabel for punting. They are crushing Frank Reich on fourth and goal for going for it instead of kicking the field goal. Listen, obviously, as we know, maybe in the end, when you look back at it, field goals would have won the game because, honestly, the Colts defense played better and held Josh Allen to less points than I thought. Honestly, 27 points, I would take that a win. I didn't think that they were going to hold the Bills' offense to 27 points in this game. So my mindset going to that game and in that moment was – you have to score touchdowns. Touchdowns are going to win this game, not field goals. So I had no problem going for it on fourth down. People are freaking out that, you know, this is one of the worst coach decisions ever. People, first of all, don't realize Frank Reich is an aggressive coach. This is the same guy in his first year in 2018. In an overtime game against the Texans, went for it on fourth and four from his own 35-yard line. In overtime, he didn't get it. The Texans basically just took three knees, kicked the field goal, and won the game. This guy is aggressive, and I love the aggressiveness because that's what wins you ball games more times than not. So going for it, I had no problem with. My bigger issue was the third down, the the toss to Jonathan Taylor. You were having success running up the middle from the one yard line. To me, you should have just punched it, ran up the middle, and tried to hit him in the mouth two times to get it in the end zone. So play calling on third down, I have more of an issue. I thought the fourth down play call was actually again, it was there. Pittman was open; you should have caught it. But it's just my I, I was so mad that Twitter is crushing Frank Reich for not taking the points, not kicking the field goal, and basically being too aggressive. But then at the same time. Two hours later, they're crushing coaches for punting and being too conservative. It's just like I understand Twitter is one of those things where it's easy when things don't work out to, to have hindsight. Oh, man, what an idiot. He should have kicked the field goal. Oh, what an idiot. He should have went for it. And then when it doesn't work, oh, man, wow, he should have just definitely taken the points. It's so frustrating. And I forgot that that happens when everyone's watching the game at the same time because you went to your favorite team. They don't know the tendency sometimes of what the coach and what the player wants to do. 
and they just kill the decision. So sorry, I just want to get that off my chest. That was very frustrating. So sure, at times the play calling, interesting, but overall I have zero problem. To me, like I don't know why Frank Reich has gotten a lot of grief this year for play calling um, from Colts fans, and I just don't. I have no problem. I like the aggressive mindset. I like that he wants to push the pedal. I like that he's trusting his offense to get the job done. I have no problem with it. Um, like I said, maybe the Steelers could have ran the ball more. Fine. Um, I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, when it's an aggressive mindset in the end, I have little issues with that overall. This is why we're calling it the playoff losers therapy session, because that was very therapeutic. And thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate oh, it. Yeah. Thank you, Seth. That felt good. I haven't said that at all. Yeah. So I feel this because I have like, I wish for that aggressiveness from, from my team. I wish for that aggressiveness. I wish for that trust in the offense. And I'm going to, I'm going to take and go my side because I need to do this. I've been holding on to this and I've been rage tweeting throughout the whole past couple of days. It's gotten to a point where it's become completely unhealthy. I've started comparing the Seahawks to the Steelers. That's how bad it's gotten. It's it's gotten that bad. And I just think the, what killed the season really was just Pete, once again, kind of going back to the tendency of remember, forgetting that Russ is a top five quarterback. He's just completely forgotten that. And I get it. Like he's, was very pedestrian over the like the last couple of games, and I understand that. But you gotta do something. Like, you gotta, you can't like look at this team and think it's still like this defensive like stalwart that you had like five, like in the early two twenty tens. That's not. You can't look at it that way. You can't. It's the same sense of stubbornness that he's not willing to change with what the league is doing. Like they just recently fired Brian Schottenheimer, and granted, I thought that that was the move to make because like. The last eight games, like, what the hell happened? The team looked so great on offense for, like, the first six games, but then out of nowhere, once the team started adjusting, they couldn't figure out how to out-adjust the adjustment. And, of course, it had to be made, but now I worry that, like, this is more of a case where Pete's going to want a guy that's going to agree with his offensive philosophy, which is, you know, establish the run, establish the run. That's always been his mantra. It's always has been. And I just look at it. I'm looking at this thinking, like, Pete's learned nothing. He's learned nothing. And we're reaching a point where the Seahawks are going to turn into what the Packers were with Mike McCarthy. They're always going to get at least like 9, 10, 11 wins, but they're never going to get an inch of like the NFC Championship game. Never. And it's, you get stuck at that point. I'm just like, why do we keep doing this? Why? I, I don't understand. Like Pete has learned nothing. Like, and I don't know if it's a sense of stubbornness or his, he, him just like not understanding what modern football looks like today. But it's just like, oh my god! I, I, it. Yeah, what's going on, Sus? Like I said, the first nine weeks, this was. I mean, I picked them preseason to go to the Super Bowl. Obviously, halfway through the year, they look like a great pick. This team, Russ is cooking. This team is high flying. And offense, even when they're losing games, it's it's fun, exciting. At least they have some life. Like they know what they're doing in offense. And it's like, maybe I think it was the Buffalo game when they lost. I think it was like they scored like thirty four points. I think something like that. And then it's like from there, like the offense just dropped off a cliff. Like what, what happened? My guess is a lot of teams, like here's what I've read. It was that a lot of teams with def opposing defenses, they started dropping two safeties back because what they basically were trying to take away was that deep ball plays, basically right. taking away the one thing that makes Russ so special and why. And I will tell you this, his deep ball is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see in football. It's, the moon ball. it's just, it floats. It's like you want, it's like watching a bird, like 
majestically fly upwards and then just land in a bird nest. It's just so beautiful. It's one of the most greatest sights to, uh, you'll ever see. And especially when you're when he's throwing it downfield to guys like DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. I think the issue that they need to like fix this year heading into like this off seasons, they need to create, get someone, another receiving option, especially at the tight end position who can execute and get a first down on like when they're five or seven yards back, they need to get that guy because I felt that that was lacking and they didn't trust any of their tight ends to get the job done. And when you're relying on an old Greg Olson and you're relying on a Will Disley who's coming off multiple severe leg injuries. Like it's tough for Russ to like look at these guys and say, here, I'm going to chuck you the ball. I need you to get this first down. And it, it's just, they need that guy. And I have always been stressed this for years. And I've always been yelling this. They have never had a pass down back. Like with the Colts, they have Naheem Hines who yeah, stepped up fair. major this year. Like I, Naheem Hines looked like, the better running back at times compared to Jonathan Taylor before Taylor eventually shut that whole notion down with his past couple of games. And they've never had that like safety valve running back. They've never had that guy. And like Marshawn Lynch was like the reason that they never really had that guy was because Marshawn not only functioned as an excellent runner, but he was also someone that Russ could just dump it over to on the passing lane. And then he could still just run people over and get a, get a touchdown. So, They've never had that third down back or like a pure passing down back. And I've been clamoring for this team to get one. Like Russ basically needs a safety valve. He needs someone he can rely on when the deep ball is taken away. He needs someone that he can just dump it off to and he can like, and they can fight and claw for yards and get a first down. Like they need people that will just move the chains. And I understand like Pete wants to run the ball because he wants to create an incentive for defenses to stack the box against them. And it's just, it's not, it's problematic because heading into this off season, Chris Carson's a free agent. And I, we've, I'm a firm believer. You do not sign, extend running backs. You just don't. You let bad, te- bad teams do that. Bad teams are the ones that basically extend running backs and give them an ungodly amount of money. And you're seeing that in Dallas and you saw it in LA where they just gave like a multi-year extension to these guys. And then they just, they're either not performing up to that standard or they're just cut entirely in the Rams case. They cut Todd Gurley. I'm like, it's just not worth it. I hope they don't sign Chris Carson. And I love him. I love Chris Carson because he was a, a picked in the seventh round and this guy stepped up and basically became a running back almost as good as Marshawn Lynch at times. That's a good point, Sus. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Like I said, like the, now, honestly, that was something that registered in my mind. But now that you bring it up, right, it's like every time you see like Russ get in trouble, or scramble, he's either going down and getting sacked, or he's trying to throw the ball deep to like Lockett or DK on like a broken play. And they got a lot of touchdowns, don't get me wrong. But to a point where like that offense, now you think about it, it's like it was kind of all or nothing. Like either it was a 50 yard touchdown pass or it was like a three and out because you're right, they don't really have many guys to move the chains. They didn't have that guy you can dump it off to, to your point, and like get seven yards on a third and seven and move the chains. It was like, all right, you're going to scramble. Here, deep ball, you know, scramble drill, go deep, and it's either broken away or or caught for a touchdown. That's a great point, Sus. And especially against the Rams, it kind of saw like when they took away, like, basically outside of the one DK Metcalf touchdown, um, any sort of, like, deep threat, it's like they couldn't move the ball at all. Like, th- this team can't treat together three or four first downs. Like, it, it's like they either have, like, three, three-play scoring drives or it's like a three and out. 
that's gotta be super frustrating. Yeah, it's it's a, it's unfortunate, but I I'll, I'll just say this: like the the bright spots about this team, though, offensive line has never looked better. Like despite what you saw in the Rams game, that offensive line I was just gonna say has never looked better. And Mike Solari, their offensive line coach, has been a godsend for this team. He turned Brandon Shell, who looked bad on the Jets, and he made him look good. He made him look great. Like basically, they signed this guy to a bargain, and he looks like one of the top ten right tackles in the league. They, they drafted Damian Lewis, who looks already fills in as a long-term cornerstone of this offensive line. And then on the defensive side, look, the first eight weeks, it looked her- horrible. One of the worst defenses performances in NFL history. I get that. They turned it around, you know, because when they got Jamal Adams back healthy, when Carlos Dunlap was, when they acquired Dunlap, the defense stepped up. And they still have, like, one of the best front sevens in the league like they their defensive tackles are incredible they have their pass rush actually really stepped up like you got guys like benson mayoa and lj collier hell like the what they had like this one rookie alton robinson who despite unlimited snaps was creating just as much pressure as chase young chase young <laughs> That's yeah <laughs> and I don't – maybe they, they have – like, definitely have some adjustments to make on the def- defensive side. I just think that at the end of all this, like, the one thing I wanted to stress about this team is there's just no sense of urgency. And what doomed the season to me was the moment they gave Pete Carroll that extension in the middle of the year. Right before the Bills game, they gave him the contract extension. I thought, oh, my God. that's that, It <laughs> looks horrible then. It looks even worse now. Because what you basically did, you basically gave Pete Carroll tenure. It's, you know, you know, like when high school teachers, they reach a point where they keep working at a school over and over again, and they eventually get this thing called tenure. And basically they're untouchable. Yep. You're basically gave Pete Carroll a reason to not feel a sense of accountability. Someone in that organization needs to challenge him. And he needs to basically fight on him on some of these decisions. So maybe like, don't, they need someone in that organization that's going to tell them, yeah, Pete, maybe don't punt in this situation. You're off. Your defense is getting gashed by Cam Akers. Maybe don't do that. Maybe figure out another way to get the ball out, or get the ball out quicker because they're clearly just clamping down on the deep end. So, I, look, I I know I've, I've just gone on this long-winded. I have, like, other questions. It's just, you know. Ugh. Do you just, put this season – and their failures on Pete Carroll, like obviously a lot of people deserve blame. Who gets the most blame in your mind? I think Pete. I think okay. Pete beat Pete, Pete and Shoddy, but like and even like the entire coaching staff, honestly. Like I honestly am shocked that Ken Norton is still around. Cause nothing about him impresses me as a defensive coordinator. Nothing. I think he got lucky because the defense like picked it up, but that was just because like their their the guys got back and they acquired Dunlap who really just energized that defense. They have guys like, I still can't wait to see what they, what, what's to come with uh, Daryl Taylor, Darnell Taylor or whatever his name is. Uh, But (laughs) I'm because that guy's incredible. Like he, I've seen his tape from Tennessee and he looks great. It's just sucks that he's was injured the whole season. I'm just interested to see what they do. But to me, it's just like, it's looking bleak. And I know it sounds and no one wants to hear this from a Seahawks fan. Someone, it's like, oh, you guys get 10 wins a year. Like, why are you complaining? It's like, because the goal is to reach a Super Bowl. Right. Making the playoffs doesn't matter if you're not in the Super Bowl. The expectations are high, of course. And when those expectations aren't met, that's when people get kind of frustrated. 
they start gaining a sense of anger. It's just like, what are we doing? The tire, the tire stuck in the mud. Do something. Right. To your point, the 10 wins almost serve as like a shield. Like, all right, like, why should we change anything? We've got 10 wins a year. Like, oh, it's just one or two minor fixes in the playoffs. And like you said, it's like, you know, it's kind of the same thing every year now. You're right. Like, they get to the playoffs, and I was a believer. And it's like, you get there. It's like, well, nothing changed. Like, like I assumed a switch was going to flip at some point this year. Like, they're better than what they're playing, and it just didn't happen. And to your point, it's almost like if you get like a six or five win season, people are all right. Changes have to come. We'll figure something out. Maybe Pete Carroll's philosophy has to be overhauled, but it's like the 10 wins serve as a shield. Like, Hey, listen, we're still a really good team. Like without kind of realizing like you have a ceiling that's not the Super Bowl. So I get your frustration size. Yeah. It's like, sure. 10, right. How many people, how many teams sign up for 10 wins a year and make the playoffs every year consistently a lot, but at the same time, it's like, well, you also signing up for that kind of knowing there is a ceiling there that will prevent you from getting to the Super Bowl more times than not. It must have. Did you have that same similar feeling when it was Peyton growing up? But like before, eventually he like cracked the ceiling and won a Super Bowl himself. I wouldn't say it's just no. Like just because obviously, like, you know, his struggles were, were the main reason for it, right? Like obviously, he, he there's no secret that he didn't play his best in the postseason. But there was at least belief that you know he could eventually do it. Like he has it. Like it's not the talent that's the question. It's not the coach that's the question. It's just really. Can one of the greatest quarterbacks I've ever seen just get it together for two or three games in the biggest spot and get it done? So, like, I never really saw like to me this, the the goal on the ceiling was the Super Bowl and winning the Super Bowl. It's never like oh man, like with with Peyton here, even before he won it, like they'll never get it done. It's just can he put it together? Like, whereas like the Seahawks, I, I obviously trust that Russell Wilson can do so, but I don't trust the coaching staff. I don't trust some of the pieces around him that will be able to help him get there you know so it's almost like different where it's like you trust russell wilson you don't trust a lot of the, the rest of the team or the coaching staff whereas the flip side it's like you didn't trust Peyton manning but obviously he was the issue or he was a lot of the reason why early on in 03 and 04 and 05 they weren't getting there even after that you know some other bad playoff losses early on um but the rest of the team like you know the, the defense was fine and the coaching staff was there so it's yeah, there's never like a thought about like this team can't get there. It's just more Ken Payton do something to get there. So you guys were almost like we almost had all the pieces, but like it's just execution was really all that mattered. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I want to just go into one last question for the Colts is let's say Philip Rivers walks, which is what it's looking like. He might hope so. He might retire. He might get a job, be a commentator, a color commentator for one of the big networks, which would be awesome. I love Phillip Rivers. I love the fact that he's like this trash-talking quarterback. <laughs> it's, it's just like, out of all the quarterbacks in the world, really? Phillip is the one who's like going in, like trash-talking a defensive player? That's amazing. I love I love that about him. Um, so it's going to fill a need a quarterback, and it, that position has kind of been a gigantic purgatory position for this team which i i guarantee you, you give you put that team and you get a great quarterback in there they're instant super bowl contenders like instantly like totally let's agree. let's say deshaun watson gets traded there matt like magically appears and he's a cult that team's a, a instant super bowl contender because you know what the cults have they have an excellent running back one of the best offensive lines in the league even though their left tackle retired mm-hmm. they still one of the best because they have the best guard in the league one of the best centers in the league and a defense that is steady, rock solid. And I will say this, as someone who has watched Bobby Wagner for years, you're, 
how blessed is it to have a great middle linebacker on your defense? Because when Darius Leonard was injured, that defense was not the same. When he's in there, he is such a difference maker. It's just with middle linebackers, you just don't notice it. You don't, there's some things that you just can't notice without actually watching the game. And Darius Leonard is one of those guys that just like when he's in the game, everybody else on the defense just steps up and it's just, it's a blessing really like you, you having a great defender like that, having DeForest Buckner be a difference maker on the line. And then I don't know about your secondary, but I'm assuming it's okay too. So let's say they're trying to adjust the quarterback position. How would, do you want them to do this? How do you want the transaction? Do you want them to draft a quarterback or do you want them to acquire an established quarterback? I think where they are in the draft, it's going to have to be acquiring an established quarterback. They're, I think it's, I believe, 22, if I'm not mistaken. So they're too far back to obviously, you know, get a Trevor Lawrence, which he's not going to go past one. But you're too far back to get a Zach Wilson or a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance, if, if those are any of the guys that Chris Ballard and Frank Reich like. They are very – they don't really give away a lot of draft picks. Um, so I don't see them, you know – personally giving up the farm, let's say to go up to two or go up to three in order to draft one of the quarterbacks that they like, like that would, that's going to take multiple first round picks. I don't personally see the Colts doing that, but who knows maybe they like a guy to like a guy. So I think it's going to come down to getting an established quarterback already in the NFL. My guy, number one by far is Sam Darnold. He's the, he's the guy I kind of had my eyes on the prize for. Um, Cause uh, it, it's, there's a lot of quarterbacks, right? There's going to be a lot of options this year for a lot of teams. At the same time, how many options truly get you excited? Like Mitch Trubisky probably is going to be out there. Is he someone that you have faith in? Hell no. No. Um, I'm trying to like Jameis Winston, I think has, yeah, he has talent, but also at the same time, he has plenty of deficiencies. Jimmy G, if, if he is let go by the 49ers, he'll be out there. Hold Kim on, hold on. I'm like, going to hold off on that for a second. Sure. Because I hope that doesn't happen. Because I would much rather they, the Niners keep Jimmy G and Kyle Shanahan continue to be under this false belief that Jimmy G will get them to a Super Bowl. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, 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 no. There comes the Seahawks hate. No, there, there it is. So. I hate the 49ers above them. And then there's the Packers I just don't like for some reason. The Rams and the Cardinals I just, I'm fine with because I actually have friends who are like root for those teams. Interesting. Um, uh, but, you know, aside from that, like, no. I was thinking about Sam Darnold getting drafted, getting traded to the 49ers for, like, a, the longest time. Because I feel oh, like I hope not. that's such a move that the 49ers would make. Cause they I think did, Sam Darnold still has a lot of talent. So I think that would be a bad that would be bad news for you, Sus. I think he would be, be our role in that Kyle Shanahan system. I, I also like, genuinely think for Sam Darnold, like, maybe he just needs to go back home. He's a California guy. Maybe he needs sure. to be in California. And I was just thinking, with Goff struggling during the season, do you think the Rams might try to trade like a, a second-round pick to trade for Sam Darnold? <laughs> it's it like it opens up doors. Like the fact that they chose John Wolford over an injured Jared Goff. Like if you had a star quarterback and he had an in, a broken or dislocated thumb, you're still going with that star quarterback, a hundred percent of the time. But the fact that he right? actually, yeah, I agree with you. chose John Wolford over Jared Goff to start that game says so much about the trust level that he has in Jared Goff right now. So, And you see how Jared Goff played, too, once he came in. I mean, I think that also confirmed the reason why he was the backup, right? And he played awful. 
Like, like obviously they, they wanted to score 30 points. I had a nice touch on Robert Woods outside of that. He was terrible. Yeah. That's what made that loss so much, so much more infuriating than all than in the entire season as a whole. But you know, is, is there anybody else that aside from Sam Darnold, like how do you feel about them re- trying to reconnect Frank Reich with Carson Wentz? Let's say that's a, that's an interesting one. Um, I will say this. I have, I have no reason to not trust Frank Reich and Chris Ballard. So if that's like, I don't want that to be a cop out, but if that's like one of the things where they decided the best of the franchise, I would have some questions, but I am not going to sit here and say, you know, I don't know what the hell they're doing. It's going to be, that's one. Yeah. I probably would be a little questioned of and more just honestly, how he's a teammate. He sounds like an awful teammate. So Maybe like all he needs is a new, you know, change of scenery and maybe truly Frank Wright got the best out of him and that'll work out well, but it's a big contract he already has. He has injury questions, which is a whole other, you know, question. I understand he'll be a behind a better offensive line than he really ever had in Philly. And that's still a guy that, you know, he started one playoff game and he didn't even play through the playoff game. So it's like Nico's been to, went to the playoffs three times. He played a total of about one quarter, one quarter plus in those three appearances. So that, that is a little concerning. Um, talent-wise, I think he's, you know, again, I, I think that a lot of the issues in Philly were outside his control. He obviously played bad this year, but I think also a lot of it has to do with injuries, has to do with play calling, has to do with just the overall situation. Um, so I wouldn't hate it. He's not number one on my list. I'll say that. I think to me, still Sam Darnold would make the most sense of this team. He's still the guy that I, I kind of have my eye on the most. Um, but you know, for all the core decks that are going to be out there, Sus, I think quickly you kind of realize, like, man, there's not as much talent as maybe we thought out here. So that elevates Carson Wentz's, you know, status if uh, if he truly is available. Who even knows? Doug Pearson, fine. Maybe that this is signaling that Carson Wentz is their guy next year and he won't be traded. So I, I don't know. But he's got to be interested in. But that's if Sam Donald's off the table, then probably I would take a hard look at him for number two. I think just for Sam Darnold's sake, I hope he lands on your team because he could finally be at peace being a, behind an offensive line that actually can protect him. And then also having running backs that can that that won't just punch in and then just like only get a yard like Frank Gore. And then like have receivers that could do something and maybe have a GM that will actually supply him with guys that will have guys that uh, like can that can catch any any pass. But you know, it. I'm just interested to see because, like, the whole landscape, like, there's so many quarterback questions from all across the league. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, it's this. I'm so excited. This offseason is going to have, I mean, right, usually teams only, you know, there's only a question about the quarterback in the draft. This is the first time maybe ever that we get a ton of potential quarterbacks heading the market that you normally never see. I mean, Deshaun Watson, I probably think he's going to get traded, to be honest. So, like, obviously that is, you know, first and foremost, you got to have, top five quarterback on the move, something we've never seen before. It's going to be, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. Yeah. Before we wrap up the show, I want to do this. So over the holidays during Christmas, you had the opportunity to host and cover for JR on the JR Sport Brief. And you've hosted solo before. You have your own show and everything. But like this, did it feel different for you since not only were you covering for some, for like a show during the, like, the holidays, but also like this is, a show that like you've produced before, like for CBS sports, for sports radio and you produced it. Did it feel different? Was there like an added pressure to hosting for a network that you've produced for such a long time? Yeah, I, I can't lie. I was very, very nervous. I try not to think about it. Like I found out like a week before, 
trying to think about it. And then like, probably like, like the show started at 10 Eastern. So probably around like eight 30 or nine, it started like my legs started shaking. I thought the first, like the opening segment was pretty bad to be honest. I just, it's like, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, but thankfully the nerves went away after that. And it was a lot of fun. Um, the, the four hours flew by, like that was the show. Like you mentioned the show I hosted only two hours. And I feel like sometimes those shows take longer and drag on a little bit longer than like the four hour show did. So it, it flew by and it was a blast once we got going. Um, but yeah, I can't lie before the show, the pressure was there, the, the nerves were a hundred percent there. And it was, like I said, that, that first opening monologue, um, I'll say wasn't, wasn't the best for sure, but we, we made it through. I could tell that you started like kind of, you picked it up and it felt like you felt more comfortable because I, I caught you at like the last segment where you were talking with uh, producer James about <laughs> the Jets tank, like, and some of the stuff, the ramifications that came with. It. And I thought that you guys had a great exchange and I loved it. Um, I just, I was just kind of wondering, cause like th- this was like, Oh my God, one of my, one of my closest, uh, a great colleague of mine is having this incredible opportunity. And I, and I'm just like, I know he's going to kill it. He's going to have, he's going to have a great show, all that stuff. And I was just like thinking to myself, like, did it like what, since you produced for like, produced for CBS sports, like sports radio, like was it did feel like any, did feel like more comfortable since like you were kind of, you already kind of understood the format and how everything went. Yeah, that, that for sure. made it so much easier. Cause like, you know, the reads, you know, the clock, like you, you kind of know how things work. So that for sure being there for four years helped so much because it's like the small things that maybe let's say if it was filling in on a random station or like a, you know, a station I never really worked at, but just like, Hey, like, you know, we saw you, we want to give you a shot here. And just, you, you kind of go in, pl- excuse me, sorry, sauce. you go in <laughs> blind. Um, it definitely, yeah, the comfort, the comfort level is a lot higher just because like you said, you know, you work the shows, you, we have some, we, we know how it's supposed to go. We know what's supposed to happen. So that just ha- like helps so much um, going into segments, going out of segments, kind of, you know, look at the clock, try to pace it out, time it out. It helps so much more than it's like going into a station blind, if you will. Yeah. And, Hopefully, I get we get to hear on the CBS Sports Radio again. Hopefully, uh, hope so, Sus. I hope you know we didn't burn it down, so we're still we're still on the air when the show is over. So that's I'll take that as mission accomplished. So hopefully, we get to do it again. Yeah, and Ryan, so let the people know how they can reach out to you and and on the social medias and what you've been up to because like I've seen you you have like another you do a segment for Sports Night, and I thought, wow. This is uh, something. It's like your own uh, CBS Sportsman in some way. Yeah, I got to do. I got to <laughs> exactly. I got to do some short videos, daily videos for Sportsnet on their social media, um, just reacting to the news of the day. Um, so that that's been an awesome opportunity. Um, yeah, Twitter Ryan underscore Hickey uh, and the number three um, Ryan Hickey show. Also on Twitter is the show page for the show I host on the Worldwide Sports Network. So. Trying to keep busy, you know, with the content there. Trying to provide some thoughts and uh, trying to build a following, if you will. And that's the most important thing. And you could also catch the Zach Gelb show, which is on CBS Sports Radio, the show that you produce. And you can catch it. They it it runs from six to ten p.m. Eastern. That's going to do it, everybody. Do not forget to follow this podcast on Spotify as well as Anchor.fm and Apple Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you guys next time.